Happy last Sabbath in July. We are excited that you have stuck with us through the dog days of summer. It's an important Sabbath here at our community because it is the last Sabbath before camp meeting. And for those of you who are not local, we have some fantastic programs through camp meeting, concerts, sing-alongs, obviously an inspiring sermon series, as well as a Friday night program. So tune in, uh, louc.org, for more information. We're going to talk today about the heat, and it seems an apropos topic because it's been a really hot week here in Southern California. Before we jump in, let's have a word of prayer. God, we want to thank you so much for your blessings. We want to thank you because you are the God of the mountain, but you are also the God of the valley. Mm. And Father, you reign over the days, but you also have sovereignty in our nights. So for those things and for everything you do and have done and will continue to do, we praise you. For we pray in your name. Amen. Before we start, I want to just talk about an email uh, message that we got just last week. M remember, we continue hoping that somebody can solve the quandary about Job's birthday. Uh, this doesn't have to do with that particular question, but I thought it was a really poignant comment by Dr. Roger L. Witten. And Dr. Witten says, the only answer, speaking about suffering, I have been able to come up with is that although God is omniscient and even to a degree prescient, he knows how everything will ultimately turn out since he is the all-powerful God, he doesn't necessarily know our response to stimuli. And therefore, we, we see when reading the entire Bible, changes in direction God takes in relationship to man. Paul said that he would be all things to all people to save some. God will try all things to see what will work with his creation in order to save it. Roger, this is, I think, a great synopsis of Rick Rice. And we talked a little bit about this last week, though we couldn't really get in the weeds. But that's, a, I think, a great synopsis of this idea of open theism, the idea that God limits God's own knowledge in order to provide freedom, because after all, God values freedom above everything else. So thank you for those insightful comments. Thank you for the conversation that continues to grow. And at this point, I'd like to invite my co-host, now sitting with uh, some space between him and I. Joey, how are you this week? What's going on with you? Oh, it's good. It's a, It's been a good week. Um, summer has been hot, but this week has been relatively cool. So my family and I have been able to get out outdoors and do some outdoor activities, which mm. we normally avoid like the plague here <laughs> in Loma Linda during July. So. Yeah, it's been good. It's been it's been a cooler week. I I just realized I said it's been hot because it has been in the 90s, but yeah. let's face it, for us here in <laughs> Southern so California, true. the 90s are are positive, yeah. almost fall-like weather. So that's that's good. That's good. Yeah. I mean, 95 is nothing. If we 95 during the heat of the day means that at least at night it's going to drop into the 70s, mm -hmm. which is Great weather. Right? Great so. weather. So you, you suffer during the day, and then yeah. you remember why we live here when the sun goes down, and it's a balmy 75 degrees, and 
with a breeze. It's it's just beautiful. Yeah. It's a beautiful place to live. Yeah. So if anybody's trying to avoid coming here to uh, Loma Linda because of the heat, it's not always that bad. So, yeah. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. It's actually we have quite quite the weather. So, Joey, we're talking again about these ideas in this life in the crucible, and the lesson seems to touch on several texts and it weaves these stories together to talk about these trials through fire or these trials through the heat. Um, so thinking about this, I was kind of wondering if experiencing heat in the way the lesson describes it is part of our spiritual maturation process. Is heat necessary, in other words, for spiritual maturation? Yeah, we touched on this a little bit last week. I think that there does seem to be, especially in our broken world, mm -hmm. I'm not sure if this was always the case, if this was always the plan before sin came into this world, but especially in our broken world, there does seem to be um, some heat, some pressure that, that does refine us, that does grow us, and that um, sometimes we even need the motivation of that heat in order to, in order to grow. Mm. What I find interesting about some of these passages that we're going to look, look at, they do come from very different sources. The heat comes mm -hmm. from different sources, right? Because if you look at the, the heat for Abraham, God directly mm -hmm. applies that heat by challenging him or asking him to do something that puts a lot of heat in his life. So it's almost like artificial God-created mm. heat. Um, in the case of um, Job, God gives permission for mm -hmm. Satan to raise the heat. And then in the case of Hosea's wife, um, her choices lead to mm -hmm. some heat. Mm -hmm. So it, it is interesting that in each of these um, um, passages, there is a little bit of a different source of heat. And yet each of them do provide an opportunity for growth. So let's look at these passages just chronologically. The first one we have in Genesis chapter 22, and we've talked a little bit about this story, a uh, famous story in the Jewish tradition. It's called the Akedah story or the story of the binding. Um, and we know the story well. What I think, again, we, we probably should note is that the command that God gives Abraham is pretty unambiguous. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Yeah. What do we do then when God's, when God's commands seem so clear and mm -hmm. unambiguous? Because often we believe that our relationship with God, our developing our relationship with God is all about learning how to interpret better God's will for our lives. Yeah. It seems here that there is no space for interpretation. It's it's a rather clear and direct command. Yeah. And while sometimes we as human beings crave that directness, it seems like for Abraham, the space that he lives with uh, in this unambiguous invitation to sacrifice is, is something that I think he would have really, really wanted some nuance or maybe some space to debate or to justify. But God's command is so unambiguous that, as you mentioned, it's clear where the heat is coming from. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you're absolutely right. This is probably one of the few times where we would like to for God to have some more <laughs> mm -hmm. ambiguity. 
ambiguity so that we could reason around this this thing. Um, it reminds me of um, uh, John Orkberg talking about God commanding Moses um, to circumcise himself and his kids. And um, he imagines Moses saying to God, God, I know this is a symbol of your covenant, but Noah got a rainbow. Can, <laughs> could we do like a secret handshake or a Dakota ring or something? You know? But maybe that's why God is so clear, right? Because it's such a challenging thing. God knows that he needs to be absolutely clear, especially since at least at first glance, it does seem out of character mm -hmm. for God, right? This is not something that God typically asks people to do, sacrifice children. I mean, I can't think of any other time where God asks someone to mm -hmm. sacrifice their child, right? So um, maybe that's why God is so clear in this passage. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, that's. I think that's a an interesting take on it, the fact that it, it seems that it goes counter what God has been telling his people that a covenantal relationship entails and then that and therefore that's the need for clarity. So the lesson talks a little bit about the interpretation that is given to this text in Patriarchs and Prophets. Mm. And the gist of the interpretation is that God never really intended to have Abraham sacrificed Isaac. Rather, God was testing Abraham mm -hmm. in order to grow Abraham's faith. What do you what do you think about that? That mm -hmm. I, I had to reread that statement in Patriarchs and Prophets several times this over this week because something uh, something wasn't fitting mm -hmm. or wasn't feeling quite right, and so I, I kind of just want to get your taught your thoughts as you read and considered that particular passage that gives us kind of this behind the scenes look as to, as to what's going on in Genesis 22. Yeah, I mean, definitely that's the way that growing up I saw this passage mm -hmm. because um, that's the way that it at least makes it a little bit better. Yeah, at least that at least God wasn't trying to really trying to get Abraham to um, sacrifice his son Isaac. That Isaac was never really in danger, right? And that that does make us feel a lot better about God's character mm -hmm. because if God was really intending for Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, and then and then relented at the last moment, I mean, what does that say about God and who God is? Um, and so that 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 is the way that um, I grew up looking at it and. It's still a very challenging passage to me, but um, that did help growing up. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I fully understand the passage. I don't know. How, how, what was your um, experience with it? I, I think I felt the same way growing up, yeah. and then I had children. Mm -hmm. And I realized a couple things. Um, so I realized first that... It's really difficult, uh, at least for, for a parent, to consider any scenario mm. where you would do this willingly. Yeah. All right? It's true. <laughs> but even more so, I, I think that the, we talk a lot about trauma and damage in relationships. And I think... If I were to tell my kids to do something and the purpose is merely to test them, um, I, do, I do have 
some difficulty understanding it. And so I went back to Genesis 22 Mm -hmm. because, again, it remains, as you, I think, so artfully said, a challenging passage. And so I started reading and reading and reading and reading and reading and just rereading it and rereading and trying to find some light. And I don't think I've, I've arrived today at a spot where I feel comfortable saying God or building a theology that says God tests you and, and orders you to give up that which you love the most without actually expecting that you will because he'll come in and swoop in at the last moment and save you. Hmm. Um, but what, what struck me about the passage, perhaps more than anything else, is Isaac's attitude throughout the passage as mm-hmm. I read and reread and reread. Um, in the sense that Isaac understands whether it's God that has told Abraham or whether it's Abraham struggling with his lack of faith, Isaac understands how much is in play right now. Mm. And because he understands how much is in play, how big the stakes are, Isaac seems to me the o- to be the only one who expresses that willful submission to sacrifice. Mm. And in that sense, I think that perhaps the story is not intended to tell us as much about Abraham and how God tests him, but rather as people who are living and being called to submit, Mm. how we are to understand how big and how great the stakes are, and maybe understanding that part and parcel of being a person of faith is this idea of submission and sacrifice, which is ultimately, right, the apex of it is found in in the gospel account and how how Christ goes willingly to the cross. Now, there ha- we've talked about this before. There are many different interpretations as to that particular act. Did God necessitate it? Did God require it? Is God a God who says, I need sacrifice and blood? Um, but I don't think that is an answer that we can probably get to. I think you're right mm. um, when you say it's a challenging passage and we need to accept that we know what we know and we don't know what we don't know. But I think the story mm. does give us some, at least some starting points as to how we ought to comport ourselves as followers of Christ. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. I mean, the, the writers of Scripture um, in the New Testament do seem to build on this theme, right? And Jesus himself um, building on this theme of submission, um, being willing to go to death, to, to die on the cross, just like Isaac was willing to go. Because mm-hmm. Abraham's a pretty old man at this point. We've talked about how Isaac probably could have over, mm-hmm. <laughs> overthrown his father and said, this is, if he didn't want to, uh, if he didn't want to be <laughs> sacrificed, he would not have been sacrificed, <laughs> yes. right? So it is a story as much about Isaac as it is about Abraham, maybe even more about mm-hmm. Isaac, especially if you look at it from the New Testament point of view. What makes this passage so hard for me is that there are other times that God asks us to sacrifice. There is some good that you can see that comes from the sacrifice, mm-hmm. right? Like when God calls Abraham to leave Haran and come to the promised land, there he knows that there's something, he's leaving something behind, but he knows that there's something better waiting on the other mm-hmm. side. With this, 
it's hard for, for him, for me, to see what was better on the other side. I mean, um, in Hebrews, it talks that, um, that by faith, um, Abraham sacrificed his son, um, believing that God could re resurrect him from the dead, right? So that's, that's what the, writers of, the writer of Hebrews seems to indicate is that Abraham thought that even if I killed my son, God is so faithful to his promises that he's going to bring Isaac back because he promised that the line would come through Isaac, right? So that kind of faith. Maybe that's what it what it was. Maybe Abraham saw on the other side that that this this resurrection would happen. But for me, but like you said, for as as parents, that is that's a really hard step to take to say I'm going to sacrifice my child because I know that they they'll experience a resurrection and come back on the other mm. side. That that makes it a very difficult mm. passage, and yet. It's a passage that is in the reality and the life flow of Abraham, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it's a it's a passage that pushes us to consider, I think, the reality of heat. Mm. I mean, the reality of being put through the fire or being tested. Now, again, we we want to be very careful uh, when we talk about this idea of testing because we don't want to portray the notion that God is actually testing you. One of these Christian platitudes that often is uh, expressed is God's never going to give you more than you can handle. Mm -hmm. And so I think that sometimes has the at least the possibility of making us a bit more callous towards other people's suffering. So we want to be very careful um, as to what we say in when somebody is experiencing suffering. Um, I think we also, though, want to be open to the possibility that trial and tribulation does provide, or there is at least a space for that within, within our Christian life. Yeah, it's true. And like we said in the beginning, those trials and tribulations do come from different sources mm -hmm. at times, right? In this case, God invites Abraham to step into the heat. Mm -hmm. In Job's case, um, there's there is another factor in play that the sinfulness and brokenness of this world, the fact that Satan is the ruler of this world right now, um, means that there is there is heat that comes from the reality of sin around us. And then, in Hosea's case um, or Hosea's wife's case, our own choices sometimes right. provide that heat for us. Right. So. Let's think about Job for a moment, and let's consider just that story. Um, the lesson points us to Job chapter 6, but we can again, as we did last week, just look at the whole of that work. And what seems, I think, important to note is that whereas in, where, as in Abraham's case, it seems at least upon first reading that the test is going to grow Abraham's faith. Mm. Um, in Job, I think that the test itself or the experience of heat is actually going to give him a new perspective on God's character. Mm. So it's not only are the places where the heat is being applied for different, it seems like the purpose of the heat is also different. In one case, at least again, and first, on first impression, it seems like God is trying to grow Abraham's faith, whereas 
with Job, God is trying to reveal who God is to this righteous man from earth. Yeah, yeah. There's a definite, definitely coming out of the other side. It's not just a character change that we're really seeing with Job. It's more of a mindset change mm -hmm. or a viewpoint change of who God is. God becomes expanded in his, mm. his view in a way maybe that he would not have been able to perceive if his life was just mm. riches and prosperity for the rest of his life. That going through that painful experience mm. gave him insights that that he otherwise may not have been able to get. I mean, does that happen to us? Do um, the lesson seems to allude to the fact that sometimes God allows us to go through some challenging experiences. Not that God causes it, but that he allows us to step into it. And um, and those experiences can become a source of comfort for others. Right. Right? That us going through grief uh, gives us the opportunity to minister even better mm -hmm. to those who have experienced mm -hmm. grief for themselves. Mm -hmm. Right? Um in a way that you that may be difficult if you never experience mm -hmm. loss and grief. Yeah, the lesson certainly talks about that, and it seems like it's trying to follow this trend uh, as we continue to talk about the purpose of suffering, because ultimately it is incumbent upon us to define and find the purpose of suffering. Again, as a parent, um, I understand that my kids are going to suffer, but my initial response is, and I know with you it's the same thing, mm -hmm. we always want to step in and yeah. protect and rescue. And perhaps that's the piece that begins to come into focus as we read at least these two stories. Mm -hmm. That maybe the test itself in the, in the Akedah story isn't really about growing Abraham's faith. Perhaps what actually is happening in that story is that this experience, which is very hard to understand even now, the ultimate purpose of that, though, and the, the best thing that comes out of it is the realization that God will provide. Mm. And so God as provider is revealed through that story. Yeah. Whereas in uh, the Job account, the thing that starts coming clear into the picture is this notion of a God who is in control of the macrocosm, mm. even if our individual microcosms do experience some pain and some privation and some heat. Because as you mentioned, heat is a part of living in this world. And so maybe it's not that God is sitting placidly by just looking at a suffer and saying, oh, well, you just got to hold on a little longer. There's a good lesson hidden in there somewhere. Perhaps it's that these experiences that happen as a result of where we live make us better aware of our need to have either a provider or a God who is in control. Mm, wow. So by going through these heating circumstances, regardless of where they come from, one positive side effect is that we recognize more deeply how much we need God. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that seems to be Job's recognition, as as high, is highlighted in in the lesson story, a lesson study in Job chapter one. Mm -hmm. I think it was Job one twenty eight, where Job experiences um, this this loss and um, this um, this. Um, Actually, Job chapter 1, verse 20. I'm sorry. 
Um, and this is his response. Uh, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshiped, mm-hmm. which I'm not sure would have been my first response, right. but it worshiped. And then he said, naked, I came from my mother's womb and naked, I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Mm. Blessed be the name of the mm. Lord. So this recognition that ultimately I do not have control over mm-hmm. my life. I, I am at the mercy of my Lord, my God, mm. um, but he is someone that I can bless, mm. that I trust enough to bless even in the midst of this pain. Um, so so this, this experience of loss and pain and grief seems to just uh, compound this idea that, that we, he needs God more desperately than mm. ever. And I think that's why, Joey, I found Roger's comment so particularly appealing as mm-hmm. we prepare to chat about this today. Because it does seem like God, although being omniscient and having the capacity to know everything, delights in being surprised by us. Mm-hmm. And so it almost seems like God knows uh, every possibility on the board. God knows what we are going to choose. God knows where those choices will lead, but God decides to hold a bit of mystery in order for us to choose. So God knows ultimately where all roads lead, but God chooses to restrict his knowledge upon what we will choose in order for us to better discover who this God truly is. And so in Abraham, I think God is saying, look, Abraham, I am going to provide for you. In Job's case, it is going to be, look, Job, your life is painful. Mm. And pain is part of the experience of being human on this world. But the earth is still rotating on its axis. Mm. Um, And so when you in your own individual life are experiencing chaos, Look at the stars mm-hmm. and you'll find order. Mm. And, and so perhaps perhaps that's wow. what God is trying to do as he, as he is desperately trying to communicate with beings that continue to experience pain and suffering. Wow. It actually reminds me of a quote that I saw this week from Brene Brown mm. um, describing her experience of coming back to the church. Mm-hmm. And this is what she, she wrote. I definitely went back to the church for all the wrong reasons. I really went because this is hard and this hurts. And in all the midlife unraveling books, they say, go back to church. That's what everybody does. So I went back to church thinking that it would be like an epidural, like it would take the pain away, like I would just replace research with church. You know, the church would take the pain um, and make it go away. And then I discovered that faith and church was were not like an epidural at all. It was like a mid, midwife who stood next to me and said, push, it's supposed to hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the recognition that this is a broken world, it's going to be painful and really just admitting that, but we can push through because we have a God who's still in control and still going to get us through the pain. And is going to provide. Um, I think that's that's the one really, really encouraging thing I think I take a, mm. from the Abraham story. Uh, ultimately, there's providence. And so we 
we kind of, and the Bible is so brilliant in that, isn't it, Joey? Yeah. So you have the Abraham story. And then you have the Jephthah story side by side with it. Yeah. Uh, where this believer of God speaks, in God speaks rashly. And I was thinking about that as I read and, and just pondered on how those two stories intermingle. And they're placed in the Bible. Yeah. And I think the point is yeah. that yeah. sometimes God's not going to stay your hand. Yeah. Sometimes tragedy is going to occur. And yet, even then, uh, the arc of God's story with us is pushing us through to this idea of redemption and restoration and wholeness and healing. And I know that it's the stories themselves, the premise is different, mm -hmm. but the the result is is the same. So in, in Jephthah's case, as we know, he speaks rashly and makes a rash vow to God. Um, and in Abraham's case, Abraham hears uh, God invite him to, to sacrifice and bind Isaac. But, but I think what, what's so powerful is that this same God decides to make himself visible in different ways. Yeah. Um, and I think that is one of the, the most important things that I took away this week as I thought about heat. It's that circumstances alter cases. And that is to say that just because I had a friend who went through a very difficult illness and came out on the other side whole and healed, it doesn't guarantee that my experience with a devastating illness is going to be the same. Mm -hmm. But that's not the point. The point is that God's going to react and interact differently with us in all of these really complex situations that we live. Yeah. Yeah, Je Jephthah's story is just so tragic to me. I mean, <laughs> there's so many things wrong with it, but it does underline to me the importance of having a good view of who mm -hmm. God is, right? that he could think that God, uh, God at any point would want him to do this. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, maybe he read the Isaac story mm -hmm. and maybe that's where <laughs> that idea came from. I, I don't, I mean, he, he obviously probably didn't think that it would be his daughter that would be the first, who would right. be the first one coming to greet him. But there was a pretty good chance that it would be someone, a person that who was the first to come and greet him. And it's just, it's just terrible that he would make that vow to begin with. And that's where it really differs from the Abraham story is it's not presumptuous. I mean, in the Abrahamic story, it's not presumptuous. It's not like Abraham is saying, God, I'm going to sacrifice my son right. and then you bring him back to life. In Jephthah's um, story, it is presumption. He's making this vow, thinking that God needs that kind of vow to come through mm -hmm. for him when God has already selected him to be a judge, which is... A, a terrible view of who God is to begin with, and that results in a in an awful tragedy. And I wonder how many horrendous things in this world could have been avoided if people just had a right view of who God was, right? Mm. How our broken view of who God is and what God wants for this world has caused so much tragedy to happen in the world around us. And the reality is we keep... We keep sacrificing our children. Mm -hmm. uh, we keep placing them on altars. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes we have an aha moment. Mm -hmm. And we realize that we're not being the parents that we're called to be. Yeah. 
and our hand is stayed. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that never happens. And there's brokenness and pain wow. in the relationships between parents and sons. But the one thing that I think I found to unite these two texts is that as parents, often we place them on altars because, as you said, we have we sacrifice our kids on the altar of self-advancement, on the altar of professional growth, on the altar of expediency. And I think we do that because we don't have a clear idea of God as provider mm -hmm. and God as savior and king in control. Yeah, that's true. And that sort of takes us to our our a third passage that we're yeah. looking at, right? Um, the story of Hosea's wife and the fact that she made choices that dropped her mm. into the hot kettle, the burning kettle for herself and the lengths that God goes to to try to redeem her. Some of which, honestly, when I first started reading this passage, I was I thought, man, that is really extreme. Yeah. Especially framed in the way of a man and wife's, um, a man and woman's relationship. I mean, borderline like stalkerish, like <laughs> obsessive, you know? Um, how do we deal with that picture that God presents of himself to Hosea and saying, this is the way that, you know, that, that I will respond to my wife who wanders away? Right. And yeah. I think the danger is to just, extricate this particular mm. passage and then just like there's a danger um, and I think you did a, a marvelous job of showing us how poor exegete you read Judges 11 right uh, which is the Jephthah story through the lens of Genesis 22 and Jephthah could have built a theology that actually allows for the sacrifice of his daughter. If that's all you had, mm -hmm. if Genesis 22 is all you had, then you can build really, really damning and damaging theology. I think if Hosea 2 is all you have, mm -hmm. then you can, you can build theology that I think, as you said, borders on abusive. Mm -hmm. What I love about this particular prophet is that that text that we read for this lesson study is actually bookended by two other texts, mm -hmm. uh, Hosea 1 and then Hosea 3. Mm -hmm. And in Hosea 1, the invitation is made to Hosea to go and marry a, to marry a promiscuous woman. Mm. So God invites Hosea to marry Gomer, fully knowing that Gomer is going to be promiscuous and to break the marital covenant between them. Genesis 2 comes, and that's the, the uh, Hosea 2 comes, and that's the passage where you do have uh, quite a bit of pain that Gomer has to now experience. But then Hosea 3 comes, mm. and uh, I l just love, after reading Hosea 2, mm. how the writer begins the third chapter. Go show love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Wow. I know. That is so powerful, because if you... 
if you think about Hosea 1 and God telling Hosea to go and marry a promiscuous woman, I mean, who would do that, right? <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to find the most promiscuous woman and going to make that woman right. my wife, right? right. Like, that, that, that makes no sense until you realize, I mean, that's what God does for us, right? God, we are, we've, we wander away from God all the time and he still pursues us and he still wants us. So that is such a powerful imagery, especially when you bookend, like you said, with Hosea 3, where he actually, after all of this that happens and tries, transpires that anybody could have predicted that she would have chased after other men because that was her habit. That was her practice even before they got married. He st- says, go back mm. and marry her, pursue her and, and covenant with her again, even after all that she's done. And yet, you do have Hosea 2, which yes. we need to talk about. Yeah. Um, so you were going to let me slide there and just <laughs> give these two bookending texts, which are beautiful platitudes. But you do have Hosea 2. Yes. And I think you said borders on stalkerish. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, you, regardless of who Gomer is, this is not a healthy relationship. <laughs> And I think it allows us to see what the prophets are and what they're not. Mm. So this whole book is an analogy for God's relationship with Israel. Mm. It is not marital advice. And so I think that's the first thing that we need to realize when we're reading, when we're reading passages like this, particularly like Hosea too, that this isn't Hosea getting marital counseling from, from God to deal, to deal with Gomer, that we need to look at it through the lens of analogy and the, sim, the symbolism that is God's relationship, God's unyielding commitment to an adulterous people like Israel. Mm. That said, um, so you're saying that I shouldn't strip my no. wife naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. Well, you can, <laughs> but then Sarah's going to call the police and then we're, we won't have a co-host next week. So, um, yeah, Joey, I think, so I think once you start, und- and I think that needs to be said, even though it's implied, um, because it's go- it is going to yeah. illuminate the rest of the passage. Now, yeah. notice, if you think of it, not in terms of a relationship between a man and a woman, but rather in terms of a relationship between God and his people. Mm-hmm. Notice what happens at the beginning of uh, verse uh, chapter 2. It says, Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one, mm-hmm. rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness for her, from her between her breasts. Otherwise, mm-hmm. so the stalkerish, really toxic part of this relationship is a result of some behavior that needs to stop. And so God is giving the Israelites the chance to course correct. Mm-hmm. And I think we've talked about this a lot with prophets, right? And with the prophets. It's almost as if God is saying, look, my will for you, Israel, is for you to be a, to construct and build a nation and a society that for that works under these certain principles, mm-hmm. equality, faith, compassion, 
care. All these principles that God has kind of woven into this, to the covenantal laws of, of his people. But, as human beings, we typically tend to stray from these principles. Mm. And I think prophet after prophet, and Hosea does it, I think, with more panache than anyone else, mm -hmm. but prophet after prophet says, this is the society that God has called you to build. But you're not going to be forced to build that type of society. You can build another society. And the problem with that other society is that if this is the type of society you end up building, there are going to be some consequences. Now, these aren't God-prescribed consequences. These are consequences that come as a result of trying to be like the other nations because mm -hmm. it, in the kingdoms that surround you, you do have abuse and mm -hmm. you have pain and you have privation and you have suffering and you have the use of the very same structures that are supposed to serve as a safety net being weaponized and then used against you. Um, and so I think it's like any other prophetic call. Mm -hmm. Hosea 2 says, come back, my people, repent, my people. Yeah. Otherwise, these things are going to happen. Yeah. And what I love about that imagery of um, that this is this is analogy, not not marital advice. I love that. And in this analogy, God is desperate to have his people back and is willing to do whatever he can. But in that, even in that broken relationship, there is this sense that God is providing for his mm -hmm. people, right? Because it, it, it says that, um, 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 verse 5, um, For she has said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And, and then she, she's, say, she's thinking that all of these things come from them. But then in verse 8, it says, For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the new wine and the oil and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So he's, he's saying that even in the midst of her wandering, he is providing mm. for, for Israel, caring for Israel. So despite all of this, despite all of her wanderings, despite all of our wanderings, God continues to provide for us, even though we mistake those provisions as a result of chasing after the things mm. that are contrary mm. to God. Even then, God provides for us. And more than that, even then, God is, even in the midst of this relationship that has gone off kilter, God is actively, and this is why I love the story and I love the fact that it was added, because again, it shows God actively trying to protect us. This idea of God creating thorn bushes in order for Gomer not to find yeah. her lovers. This idea of of God exposing her nakedness and her lewdness in order to make her less appealing to her lovers. This idea of ruining figs and vines in order for Gomer not to have money to pay for, uh, to pay her lovers. And so it's almost as if God is saying, look, I am going to do whatever it takes for you to come back mm. to me. And so it's supposed to be an analogy. It's not supposed to be advice as, as to how a married couple is to treat each other. But it does tell us about the lengths that God will go 
to in order to protect us. And yet, and I was just kind of bummed that the lesson ended uh, with verse 13, because I think that whole mm-hmm. passage doesn't make sense if yeah. you don't continue reading. So let's go to 14. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. So God isn't just trying to protect her from entering into these relationships with her other lovers. He's not just saying no. You can't have a relationship with all these other men. Men, God is actually actively providing an option to mm-hmm. Gomer. And what is the option? I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Yeah. And I find that so important because the active God is not just in the business of protecting us. He is also in the business of creating options that are redemptive, even in the middle of our heat. Yeah. And and I don't think we fully grasp how destructive sin is, how terrible it is, and how much better God is than all of that, which causes us to wander. But these are the lengths he's willing to mm-hmm. go through. And it makes us... I think we need to also think when we're in that heat that we've made those decisions to go into, I think it's important for us to recognize that the pain that we're going through is God's way of maybe bringing us Mm -hmm. back to him. That because sometimes, unfortunately, we need the pain. We Mm -hmm. need the heat. We need to really strip off all of our uh, accoutrements and, and just examine ourselves um, our nakedness and 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 understand what it is that caused us to 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 do these terrible things in the first place, and to go back to God mm. and realizing that He is the only one who can provide for us. That's that's marvelously said, and I think we do have, or at least we ought to make a distinction between self-inflicted pain and pain that comes by living in a world that is broken and that is a result of sin. And I think we've kind of made that distinction, but maybe just clarifying it a bit as we as we end our time here talking about heat. So there are situations in which we find ourselves that are not a result of anything that we have done and that trying to trace the origins of why we've ended up in this situation can actually be more detrimental than helpful. Mm. Um, And so in those cases, uh, God is saying, I will provide. Mm. I don't know when and I don't know how, but I will provide. Maybe your eyes will be open. And that's the prayer that we have. Maybe like Abraham, your eyes will be open. That ram was in that thicket since they got up on the mountain. Just Abraham couldn't see it Mm -hmm. until he heard the voice of God. So maybe in the midst of the pain that is not self-inflicted, you have an opportunity to reorient yourself and find meaning and purpose even in the midst of that. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's a thing that that is happening. Maybe, like in Job's case, uh, the pain that is, again, not been self-inflicted, it's a result of this world that we live in that is marred by sin, maybe in that case, the invitation is, again, to open your eyes and look towards the heavens Mm -hmm. and realize that God is still in control in spite of all of this evidence that seems, at least in your life, to be building against this premise of Mm -hmm. a good God that is in control. 
maybe it's an opportunity to go and look beyond yourself. Mm. But when it comes to self-inflicted pain, I think it's a little different. I think you've mentioned it. I think in those cases, pain is a result uh, that is not trying to get you to look beyond yourself or to reorient your life. But in the cases where pain is self-inflicted, pain is God's ultimate attempt at saving your life. Mm -hmm. And so I think those distinctions need to be clear. So if I'm making decisions that are negative towards my life and, and I am experiencing pain as a result, maybe that's God's way of saying, I want to save your life. Wow. So... The sources of that heat may be different, but the God who surrounds us and protects us are the, is the same, and he will provide. And so in each of those cases, we should ask, what is it that we need to do to embrace this God mm. who is embracing us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love, I love the way, the way you, you said that. Um, and the reality is, this all, that well, everything we've read today, is difficult. Mm. Abraham is difficult. Job, to, to read the story of Job and to think that God is in the midst of playing a wager game with Satan as to how moral we are is difficult. Mm -hmm. Hearing God's command to go marry a promiscuous woman is difficult. <laughs> yeah. But these stories are much easier understood when you realize that heat has also burned God. Mm -hmm. That the whole point and the reason why we read all these, these stories through the lens of the incarnation is that God just doesn't ask us to go through heat. God has been intimately burned by the heat. Mm -hmm. And so I think when you apply that lens to the stories, maybe they don't make, maybe they don't become easier to understand. Maybe they just become easier to live with. Mm. Wow, what a powerful way to end! Wow, that God is, God is um, not only the God who provides through our heat, but He's also stepped into the heat mm. to rescue us from it. Yeah. Well, with that in mind, let's go ahead and pray. Our good and gracious God, we want to thank you so much for the opportunity um, to study scripture together, to learn about you and how you draw us through the heat. Lord, help us to stick with you because you are the God who steps in the heat with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And so through the heat of the summer, we pray that the experience of Jesus may be felt in your life today and always. May God bless you until we meet again.